Yo, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Nick and Griff Show. Today is Saturday, June 18th. It is 8.48 a.m. Griff, how are you doing, man? How's your Saturday morning looking? Living the dream. I was up pretty late last night. I watched the new Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. I don't know if Adam Sandler interests you at all. What what movie? I don't know. There's no way I'm going to remember the name. It's a Netflix movie. We just put it on. But it was good. I, I give it, out of all Netflix movies, like a solid, on a Netflix scale, like a 7.4 out of 10. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. good. And you don't expect everything from a Netflix movie, Nick. But. We, uh, so, so yesterday we had a company float trip. We spent, uh, I don't know, maybe four, four or five hours out on the water or whatever. Mm-hmm. Ton of fun. Absolute, <clears throat> absolute great time. Um, but man, the sun takes it out of you. Right. So we get home yesterday. We, uh, we lay down in bed at like six o'clock and we just, we were in bed, slept all night last night. Uh, but I was watching, uh, have you ever seen that movie on Netflix? It's about like these power pills, you twist them and you eat them. And then like you get these certain powers and it was a, it was a pretty interesting movie. So I watched that last night, but I'll have to check out the Adam Sandler deal. Yeah, I'll have to check out yours. I haven't heard of that either. Be well, Griff, uh, I don't know what you're thinking here, but uh, the markets have been something else here in the past couple of days. Um, let me fix the view here. There we go. Dude, I mean, let's just get right to it here. Let's look, let's look at the past week, month, three months. I mean, look at where we're at here. Uh, we we uh, Let's see here. At the three-month back in March... 47,000, and today we are sitting at 19,124. Oof, pretty wild there, huh? S&P, S&P is still crashing here, right? S&P is crashing real hard. Look at this, man. I just think it's good that the motto of this show is one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, and we say that <laughs> every, you know every week. It's, it's, I mean, like... The price, obviously, like the U.S. dollar price has has an effect, or it's, it it matters. Obviously, um, I just always say the one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin deal because I'm more interested in how the network works and mm-hmm. those kinds of things than I am, I guess, the trading side of it. But well, and and that that ultimately leads us to right Bitcoin with a lowercase b being the coin. Bitcoin with the uppercase B being the network, right? Mm. And the investment. So that's that's interesting stuff, right? You think about the investment and, and how things are in the markets right now. There's so many other factors that play into, um, you know, the not the not the uh, the ultimately and absolutely scarce asset that the Bitcoin coin is the lowercase B. It doesn't affect that, but it does affect the investment side of it as far as the growth of the network and the infrastructure being able to use it right. And, dude, I mean, think about some of these things like treasuries and like uh, uh, the Fed funds rate, you know, and, and, and the central government setting the, the value of our money. I mean, these 12 guys with the Federal Reserve, they all get together and then they decide what, how, which direction – you know, humanity is going to go. I mean, that's weird stuff, man. Have you ever gotten into that stuff too much? I know that we talked about it a little bit, but 
What is your thought on that kind of stuff, Griff? What, just on where the treasuries are at and how, where bonds are at and everything like that? Yeah, I mean, well, just like, what's your what's your thought? Like, have you dug into it much? Do you know much about it? Or I'm not a treasury or bond expert. I mean, I very much understand when they're negatively yielding against inflation. That can't be a good thing. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, yeah. on the macro, no, I'm not really too much of a bond or treasury expert. That's why I feel like we bring on guests, like the one that we have on today. I feel like that's mm. why we... Uh, have people we can ask questions you know but uh you know it, is say, it does have the price does have a network effect i mean asics and whatnot get cheaper you know they have like a lag time i was listening to the ceo of compass mining i don't know if everybody hates him or not <clears throat> seemed like a nice guy and uh he was just talking about you know when is it advantageous to be a miner when is it advantageous to just dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Hmm. Um, but it does have an effect. I mean, the price of it does have an effect, obviously, because miners miners are selling. Equipment is cheaper. You know, there's better times to buy everything in life. But Bitcoin yeah. mining equipment is definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, but who knows, man? I mean, everything's going going down in flames. To be right. So it's like all of these things are happening in the micro economies and all over, you know, our cities, our communities, uh, even individual uh, shops and restaurants. Right. And then, and then you got to zoom all the way back out to these larger macro things that are happening and, and, and to into trying to understand what in the hell's going on. And that's why I'm excited to have another guest on this week. A guy you've seen before here on the show, Mr. Joe Consorti himself, Joe, we are excited to have you on the show here. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Doing well. Dude, the hair is looking good. The beard is looking good. You're rocking the you're rocking the shirt like all the way unbuttoned. I'm feeling some energy here today. Yeah, man. Um, you know, it's uh summertime's right around the corner, white boy summer. Gotta dress up for it, right? <laughs> white boy summer. Are you talking about winter? Is that a winter reference there? No, no, it's just the name of the summer. Yeah. <laughs> the theme of the summer, if you will. Beautiful. Beautiful. This is a different Joe than we had on the last time before. Oh, yeah. I feel like, when, when did we have you on last time, Joe? When we were like like three or four I think that was. I think Joe's episode was the fourth episode in, yeah. And this is number 31. And I feel like that is kind of nuts. So what are you up to now? Are you, are you over in uh, Massachusetts? I am, yeah, yeah. So last time we talked was in January, I think, January or February, and I was in Burlington, Vermont, and since then I have gone back down to Massachusetts, yeah. Are you a golf fan at all? I know you do the body, it's bodybuilding. I know you're not a seed oil fan, which I would like to ask you about this time around. <laughs> Are you, uh, have you taken a look at the U.S. Open at all? Because I know the U.S. Open is out there right now, I think, right? in massachusetts but. yeah yeah so i um uh I, I i like golfing i i golf um i hit nine like a week ago and right. i was uh all told like only a few above par which is very very good because i started playing a couple of years ago um and i'm going to the driving range like every other day practice my drive because right. my short game's fine um my iron is fine but my i can't drive frankly for shit and so that's that's <laughs> mostly what i've been working on golf's definitely a difficult game it's not in two years if you're shooting a little over par through nine holes you're one really talented and two 
It's not too bad. There's a lot of people I know that golf for like a lifetime, and they don't, and they don't break forty ever on nine holes. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's it's pretty tragic. There's many people in my family. I have many an uncle that can't get it together on a golf course, but uh, I saw the U.S. Open and Massachusetts has beautiful courses. They're just expensive, honestly. Like if I remember, yeah, that's Massachusetts for you. It's not just the golf courses; it's Massachusetts in general. <laughs> it's exp- it's super extremely expensive. expensive. I mean, I, I I live in a suburb. You know, um, I won't exactly say where, but our price per gallon is already like five thirty at every single station, and it's not nearly as bad as you know uh, California or some of these other places that don't have. Um, that, that have worse legislating bodies, but Massachusetts is, is pretty bad. Uh, it, it's really expensive to live over here. So good thing I'm, uh, I'm living in my parents' house, which is fantastic. Bumming off them till they, till they kick me out. Just kidding. No, <laughs> I feel like that's a good strategy nowadays with the where everything is headed, to be honest with you. Cal average rent, I think across the country is what, like 2000 now, which is just like, mm. I mean, that's just nuts because if you look at that from a budgeting perspective, you need to make like 71 a year for it to be 33% of your income to yeah. rent ratio, which like, you know, it's just a good standard for a lot of people. I mean, like for rent not to take up like 50% of your income would be great, but I don't know. You guys come out to California $2,000 if we're talking about average, doesn't doesn't get you a lot, but that's, that's all I'm going to say. It's That's not great, crazy, but I'm assuming it's the same in Massachusetts. Nick, you don't seem to uh, be affected by those types of problems in Tulsa as much, but I mean, so so kind of it is an interesting thought. So being in this part of the country and specifically here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's a ton of headquartered uh, oil and gas companies, and uh, so the the volatility it seems of the energy markets, it seems like they don't affect this part of the country. Uh, near as much as it does other places. Now, we are still seeing gas prices go up, but my gas price going up right now is for uh, four. I think forty nine, four fifty is right around where gas is for me, and and but that's like super cheap to you guys, you know. So I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a fire sale. It's wild, you know. It's in in that you know to the point of all these macro things happening. Right, that that affect different parts of the country in different ways, um, that affect different asset classes, different markets differently. Um, Joe, I know that the last time we talked, you were on a different path as you were leaving college, and now you have changed paths a little bit. Uh, I think in a very drastic way that's making you a lot happier for sure. Uh, you're doing market analytics in some sense. Tell me about what you're doing right now. For sure, yeah. So I'm working with Nick, Nick Batia. Obviously, needs no introduction. And basically, I'm I'm uh, I'm working as a market analyst for the Bitcoin layer. And so I do research, uh, you know, all across financial markets, not just Bitcoin, but uh, also you know fixed income, also equities, essentially everything. We're trying to paint a pretty broad broad stroke macro picture. And ultimately, you know, I I help write the newsletter to a pretty large degree. Uh, I help script out videos. And when it comes to the Bitcoin layer, I'm really trying to build that out in a pretty major way. So market research is what I'm doing now. Prior to this, I, I uh, you know, I was sort of on autopilot. Uh, I was going for uh, really more of like a, a salesman role, but ultimately I have, a, you know, I, I, I enjoy 
doing market research, I have a more anal analytical mind and I like piecing things together and explaining them in, in, in ideally simple ways. And, and being a salesman and really being on autopilot ultimately wasn't the path for me. It was more so something that I just had in my back pocket while I was, uh, you know, studying markets on the side and, and posting everything that I could on Twitter. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, it is, it is really my, my trajectory. Um, it, it was my intended trajectory this entire time, but you know, here we are. That's exciting, man. I think that's, uh, I, I've always thought that that was fun. I, I've gotten into some of that stuff where I've just read like a little bit of, you know, articles kind of chase down some, uh, some things, and, but I haven't done anywhere near what you're doing right now. I mean, what, what are some of the things like, what resources do you use? Um, that's one thing that I'd be curious, but what resources do you use to, to do uh, research in equities markets, fixed income markets, um, you know, whatever it is, what, what resource are you using? Yeah. So it's a lot of learning. It's a lot of listening to people smarter than you. And, and, and I suppose regardless of how much you advance or how high you go, that is ultimately the, the bulk of your job description. So for me, I, I do a lot of listening uh, and reading of BMO Capital Markets. They put out a really, really good newsletter about fixed income. They do a really, really good podcast about fixed income. And it's very high signal, not a whole lot of noise. Granted, you know, the, the two gentlemen that run it, um, you know, are, are, are rather dry. But again, it's, it's very high signal, not a lot of noise. They're not trying to fluff it up. And so I, I spend a lot of time, you know, reading things like that. Uh, I also have a Bloomberg terminal, uh, you know, that extremely expensive $20,000 machine. I got it for free from my school because I called uh, Bloomberg customer support and I convinced them that I was a faculty member. And so they installed it for free on my uh, home laptop. And so I have a Bloomberg terminal that I, I use to peruse um, that is the most uh, live on time uh, sort of real time data. And so I love using that thing. And also, wow. and also Nick, Nick is a great resource. He obviously used to uh, used to trade fixed income. And you're at Layered Money. Now he's a professor at USC Marshall. And so he is uh, a, a hive mind of knowledge uh, that I've picked the brain of. And uh, every single day working with him, I'm exponentially smarter than the last. So those are essentially, uh, you know, my main things. Also, there, there are a great deal of um, other things that I read and, uh, and and other, you know, YouTube channels that I listen to, uh, particularly Blockworks Macro. I, I follow a lot of um, uh, Alfonso on Twitter, uh, Luke Groman, basically just trying to be the most porous sponge uh on the scene and uh, and soak up all the all the all the possible information that I can because ultimately when it comes to Bitcoin it's more of an infantile industry but uh, you know and so so in terms of the markets you could really sort of mm. be, be self directed and, and and come up with your own conclusions from 13 years of data but when it comes to macroeconomics obviously you know <laughs> that that's a, a tale as old as time right and so there there's there's plenty of information to get after and so I spent the majority of my time really really learning macro not so much. Um, spending time, you know, researching uh, Bitcoin. So I, I got to ask you one more question, and then I want to get into some of the things that you're learning and researching about. Um, so obviously, people don't have the time or or don't want to allocate to time, the time to do the research that you're doing right now, right? And that is the value of the newsletter that you guys put together, right? Is don't do all the research, let us do it and let us help you understand this thing, right? Um, love that uh how much time do you spend researching and learning about these topics that you're writing newsletters for and, and educating people about so it varies but you you hit the nail on the head what we try to do at the bitcoin layer is 
top tier research analysis education, right? When it comes to the amount of signal that you get, you're not going to, you're not going to really beat the Bitcoin layer. We're, you know, essentially fully transparent in, in everything that we're doing and all of our market calls, right? And if we're wrong, we own up to it and in all these different things. Um, and so it, it definitely varies, but we, we are trying to break it down simply. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, four, five hours, depending on the subject, um, researching and writing. Uh, I mean, it, it's difficult to quantify because I, I do spend a lot of my time, my free time that I have, a, you know, not on the clock and, and not even uh, you know, paying attention to it, just just listening and absorbing macro stuff. Um, it's 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 not necessarily, you know, my job so much as it is like a lifestyle, which is why, um, you know, th- this work that I'm doing now to build up the Bitcoin layer fits so well. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't necessarily know if I can quantify it. It, it isn't a, a, a tremendous amount of time. There isn't a lot of over analysis, just deep and robust analysis that we do. Mm. I mean, I, I got to imagine because, you know, and, and I think I think Griff needs to hop in here at some point because he's talked about this a couple of times here the past couple of days. Uh, but just all, all of these different things that are happening with sovereign debt, um, GDP growth and contraction, all different all over the country, all over the world, uh, different states, different countries. Right. It's it's there's just so many variables all over the place. Griff, maybe hit on a couple of those other things that you were talking about. No, I was just going to I was excited to ask you about the bond market, how you see <clears throat> obviously things in China with their treasury going up in flames a little bit. How could you explain that to the average person a little bit better? Uh, why a bond market is so important? Why interest rates going up 75 basis points affect that so dramatically? Um, just like just hit on some of those things because you obviously do a lot of research and you're pretty well, pretty well versed in a lot of those things where it's just like people do not understand um, why a bond market is so important. I, you know, preliminarily look at the bond market as a way that the petrodollar is supported or like, or something of that manner. But um, obviously treasuries and bonds are like the layer one to the current monetary system. I mean, like without treasuries and bonds, United States treasuries and bonds, it would kind of go up in flames. No, like if that's not stable or you can't trust that market, like what are we going to trust kind of deal? Or how do you see things playing out? Uh, in those yeah, so, so there are a couple of things. Um, treasuries are base layer money. And and we say treasuries broadly because across maturities, they have different names. Um, you know, shorter maturity to longer maturity, their bills, notes and bonds, right? And so just broadly referred to as, as treasuries, right? And, you know, so, so there's that, right? And they function as the base layer money. There's always going to be a demand for treasuries because people will always seek to save in dollars. And the most liquid instrument that you could use to save in dollars is treasuries. And so a lot of people, uh, there, there's been this ongoing thing over the last uh, six, eight, nine months about how there's a bubble in the treasury market. There's a bubble in the treasury market. There's no such thing as a bubble in the treasury market. There, there's always going to be demand for treasuries. Short will wane and contract over time as financial conditions ease and tighten. But it's not as if treasuries are going to explode akin to other bonds like sovereign debt. That, that isn't uh, you know, part of the United States uh, like you know, other corporate bonds, things like that. So you know, there, there, isn't necess- there, there isn't a treasury bubble that doesn't exist. Treasuries act as base layer money. So uh, that, you know, there's always going to be a demand for them across the world in order to save and spend in dollars. Uh, when it comes to the rates markets... Essentially, the reason that this matters for normal people is that 
these rates, these reference rates that we talk about, right? So you've got, uh, you know, the, the two year is a very popular reference rate, the 10 year, um, Fed funds, LIBOR, which is now switched to SOFR, uh, general collateral in the repo market. All of these different reference rates essentially set other interest rates across the economy. Okay. So if you want to understand why things happen, if you want to understand why equities moved in a certain way, if you want to understand why Bitcoin moved in a certain way, you need to understand that essentially these reference rates are running the show, right? Greg Foss says that credit is the dog. Okay. Equities are the tail. Everything else is the tail, right? Everything else occurs as a function of what's happening in credit, in rates markets. Okay. So, you know, the, the mortgage that individuals can get on their house, that's determined uh, by a premium to a reference rate. Every single interest rate that you get uh, essentially has a spread on top of it. Um, and, and you're essentially paying for that difference, right? So as that underlying reference rate increases, um, mortgage rates increase, right? You know, consumer credit card uh, APY increases. Uh, but most importantly, corporate borrowing costs increase and emerging market debt gets cheaper or gets more expensive, okay? So debt servicing levels on uh, emerging market debts uh, right. Very, very fragile economies. Um, you know, this is not a good thing. Right. Credit risk is systematic. If, if some of these emerging markets begin defaulting on their debt, um, then somebody needs to step in like the IMF uh, and, you know, bail them out. Right. Essentially inject them with liquidity. So that's why more expensive debt uh, for corporate uh, for for sovereigns at a very, very high level uh, is not good. Right. You know, it can essentially turn an entire nation insolvent if their borrowing costs increase beyond their ability to pay them. And that, that sort of same dynamic plays out with corporates, right? Uh, what we're seeing right now is, is corporate credit spreads widening. Uh, what a credit spread, um, uh, uh, both investment grade credit spreads, um, which, you know, are, are narrower than uh, high yield credit spreads, high yield credit spreads, also known as um, uh, your, or high yield bonds, junk bonds. Those are bonds that, uh, you know, corporations with uh, fickle borrowing history uh, have to borrow in. Uh, so, so essentially the worst among us, they're the first dominoes to fall when credit becomes more expensive. Um, so high yield credit spreads, which is the premium that they have to pay over uh, the prevailing reference rate. Um, uh, it's, it's over a treasury that is the exact same maturity. Um, those are increasing, right? So higher borrowing costs for corporates, um, or we call it widening rather. And uh, also investment grade credit spreads are widening. And so corporates across the board, regardless of borrowing history, are having a harder time servicing their debt. Uh, now, at the same time this is going on, the dollar is strengthening, right? So uh, in, in percentage terms, but also um, no, uh, nominally based on the strength of the dollar, you know, their their debts cost more. That's my dog in the background. And so it's, it's essentially what you're seeing right now is just monetary tightening, um, monetary tightening in action. So over the last uh, 14 years and more specifically over the last two years, um, there has been uh, an obscene amount of uh, monetary uh, uh quantitative easing, right? So liquidity injected directly into the economy. Um, yeah. Rates have been locked at zero. There's been an insane amount of fiscal spending, more so than during 2008. And what we're experiencing right now is the rates market adjusting upward, which is independent of any any entity, right? It's it's a it's a it's a you know free market. Other than when uh, you know the Fed can step in and become a you know major major buyer of last resort, like we've seen in Japan. And the rates markets have adjusted upward to say, all right, that's enough. Uh, extremely easy monetary policy. We need to reel things back in, um, you know. Uh, uh, and, and so the the rates market of, markets have already tightened and made made financial conditions, uh, you know, tighter. Um, the the Fed is sort of lagged behind in in raising Fed funds, and as a function of that, 
Uh, essentially, this this year's inflation is a function of last year's monetary policy. And so this eight eight point six percent inflation you're seeing now is not because of sure it's month over month inflation, but as a result of the monetary policy actions that were taken last year. Okay, so the Fed is literally a year late. The Treasury market knew this, and Treasuries have been selling off precipitously. Um, rates have been going through the roof because basically the Treasury market last year has said, um, you know, they, they've essentially tried to rein in the horse. Uh, but um, inflation has really, really run away from the Fed. The rates market is, is tightening monetary conditions. And now the Fed is um, essentially in a race, race against time to normalize inflation, 6% below where it currently is. Uh, in order to do that, they're going to have to break the back of the labor market, right? Um, inflate, uh, the labor uh, unemployment rate is at 3.6%. It, you know, demand destruction is, is how inflation goes down. Uh, the, the way that, you know, demand destruction is going <laughs> to occur now um, it, it, you know, we're, we're, they, we were nearing a point before the Fed's uh, tightening actions where people were being priced out uh, of goods because they were getting too expensive. Now, because of the Fed's actions and monetary tightening and, and raising rates, increasing the cost for corporate. Get priced out of the housing market, all of those things as well. Well, we'll, we'll know. So that, that's an inflationary dynamic. Mm. What's happening right now is the Fed's fighting it with deflationary pressure. So what I was going to get at is now people, you know, the unemployment's going to skyrocket. Unemployment's going to go through the roof because higher servicing costs for corporates. People aren't going to pursue as many projects. Credit isn't as easily available. Layoffs occur uh, in, in droves throughout the economy. And this, you know, is sort of mutually reinforcing. And so the, the labor market is essentially, in my opinion, going to get destroyed, right? Not financial advice, but, but that's going to, you know, basically cause people to not be able to buy the things that they need, not because they're too expensive, um, but because they don't have jobs. And then that will obviously drive prices down. And so entering into a recession is, is how the Fed is sort of going to correct course from this, uh, you know, the, this massive inflationary spiral. Um, hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, an interesting piece on that, um, you were kind of referencing your tweet from this morning. Um, dude, the, the, the deceptive nature of inflation is just shocking. Um, you know, exactly what we were talking about there is like, People just don't, it, it seems like there's just, there's, it's so difficult to understand what inflation really is and how it impacts things, right? A lot of people see it as an increase in cost in products and services when it's actually the, the devaluing of your dollar's purchasing power, right? Um, and, but then it, again, it, to, to the macro side, there's other factors that affect, you know, I mean, what's happening in Russia or, or with Russia and Ukraine that's obviously impacting gas prices as well because we do produce a ton of gas that we use or, or oil that we use, but we still in, import some, right? So there's other macro factors that, that uh, Griff, what do you got? No, I just want to, I think I was almost, I was almost muted. I just wanted to ask Joe, obviously there's a lag time to inflation. There's a lag time to all of these market effects, do you think that we're, we've even seen, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia affect us yet? Or do you think we're just getting geared up, which is why, like, some of the interest rates are coming up at such high of a pace because they know that we're about to have a lot of supply problems? Or what do you or do you think that the it's all kind of getting mixed into one bag already? Because I kind of like or would you argue, like, what do you think the inflation is now? Do you think the inflation is just them printing money for COVID relief? 
do you think that's where we're why we're getting so much inflation right now? And then obviously the war is going to play another factor here in like a few months. Or what do you think the lag time is on some of that stuff? Yeah. So so real quick, uh, one thing Nick said a minute ago, I want to correct real quick. So um, CPI inflation is is the the increase in the prices price of goods. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a basket of goods. Obviously, it's a manipulated basket of goods, but that, that's what CPI inflation is. Um, M2 money stock inflation or, you know, just just broadly the base money supply inflation. That is um, that that's different. And so, you know, I- increasing the money supply doesn't actually uh, impact CPI in the immediate term. It impacts it about, uh, you know, eight to 12 months down the line. And so essentially uh, what, what I said is the CPI that's the CPI readings that we're getting now, 8.6% are a function of um, monetary and fiscal spending that occurred last year. Right. So yeah. your COVID relief year, whatever, whatever the Senate, whatever the house was passing, you know, all, all those, you know, what, what, whatever sort of QE the fed was doing last year, um, you know, wh- wherever that liquidity ended up, uh, it ended up inflating asset prices this year. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I don't, think we have a whole lot more to go in terms of uh, this inflation. Uh, I'm of the opinion that inflation is decelerating and it's peaked and that seems to be consensus. So, you know, we, we, we very well might get uh, another reading above 8.6%, but chances are uh, it's, it's, you know, it's velocity is slowing down and rate of change is slowing down and it's, it's about to peak. Um, there, there, there seems to be a bit of confusion. Uh, so with Russia, um, you know, obviously there have been exogenous supply shocks for the last two years or for two years straight. And so, you know, that that's naturally inflationary pressure, right? Because, you know, supply is restricted to some degree, e, you know, ceteris paribus if demand doesn't even change, then prices increase, but demand has increased, right? Because you have extremely low unemployment. We've had uh, credit expansion ad infinitum uh, for the last two years. And so you've got uh, increasing demand, but supply that's been very heavily constrained that is having difficulty adjusting to it right and so even you know th- there was going to come a point even without the fed sort of doing this tightening where demand destruction would have to occur at some point but it would have been naturally inflationary demand destruction now the fed is breaking the back of the labor market so it doesn't become extremely inflationary um, midterms are coming up and you know ultimately what what, what needs to happen is people People really don't care much more, you know, further. uh, People don't care about the macro picture further than what the inflation rate is. And, you know, and 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 unemployment to some degree. The Fed's dual mandate is to maintain stable prices and maintain full employment. And they're going to really, really heavily impact the latter in order to correct the former. So it's it's arguable that in order to amend these supply shocks, what actually needs to happen um, is increased access to credit. Uh, in order to, you know, build that infrastructure and, you know, amend some of these things on the supply side, but we're, we're doing the opposite. And so, you know, there very well could be sustained high inflation for a period of time, well into this tightening cycle, or we could peak. It's really a matter of whether or not these supply, uh, you know, the, these supply constraints could and have been corrected at, at the current price of debt. What's your thought on, um, Inflation compounding over time, right? So, so assuming it peaks uh, here this this month or this past month uh, at eight point six percent, and then continually falls off to uh, whatever that target rate is, uh, is that is that two to three percent? Is that where it's at, Joe? 
So, so their target right now is to normalize back at 2% and inflation is currently at 8.6 as of May. Okay. So, so then assuming that they, from here taper down and, and come back down to that target rate, um, as far as inflation goes, uh, that doesn't undo what has been done. That just means it's not further increasing in, in, in cost. Correct. Yeah. Um, you, you need to have deflation in order for, for prices to come down. So, so inflation can slow and normalize at 2%, but it's not as if prices are being um, brought back down. It's just normalizing the, the rate of change of prices to 2% a year, uh, yeah. which is which is why it's so... It, you mentioned deceptive like earlier on the call. It's extremely deceptive because basically nobody's monetarily literate at all. Nobody's financially literate at all. I frankly had no interest in finance until... Uh, two years ago, uh, I frankly had had no interest in, in 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 extreme numbers. I mean, I've never had a problem dealing with them, but but personally, I think I was very reflective of the average American, and that I didn't really care about you know how things went so long as things didn't cost too much. And because of that, I wasn't financially literate. I couldn't navigate these things as uh, you know, uh, I wasn't able to navigate them as, as sort of uh, better that I can now. I'm not going to say well. I'm not going to say great because I'm not necessarily where I want to be yet in terms of my knowledge. Um, but, but essentially that's why this phrase of inflation being sort of, um, you know, this, this implicit default inflation being sort of a, 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 a backdoor tax, uh, on, on Americans. It's true because not all of us, and when I say not all of us, I say, I, I mean, the vast majority of us being politely aren't financially literate. We don't know how to hedge against situations like this. Um, and, uh, and as a function of this, people get poor and poor and poor over time, but because it happens so gradually and in such an underlying way, uh, we, we end up blaming the, the Democrats or we end up blaming the Republicans or we end up blaming immigrants or we end up blaming China. Um, and sure, you know, to some degree, these things uh, may or may not impact us the way that you vote yeah. may or may not impact us. Um, but ultimately, the, the Federal Reserve is to blame in the increasing of the money supply, because uh, since... You know, 1913, coming on the 100th year of the Federal Reserve in one year here, or 100th uh, birthday of the Federal Reserve. Um, it's about time we put it down uh, in one year here. <laughs> we, we've been sort of led to believe that <laughs> inflation is absolutely necessary in order to um, maintain economic growth, in order to spur economic growth. And there are a whole bunch of schools of thought on this, right? Namely, Keynesian economics, that that is, you know, the, the school that posits that and modern monetary theory that really, really posits that inflation is an absolute good and it's totally necessary. Uh, and I would say the exact opposite. Um, and I would I would I would really go so far as to say that inflation is you know the, the opposite of necessary. Right. Uh, you know, with technological advancement. Right. <laughs> goods and services should be decreasing uh, in price throughout time. And so. When, when politicians say things like low inflation, inflation is, you know, inflation has come back down. The price of goods and services haven't come back down, right? They're never going to normalize at that, at that, you know, 1970, 1960, 1950 price. They're just going to continue back. When they say normalize, they just mean revert to the mean, right? So, you know, it yeah. goes up at a rate of 2% over time, goes up yeah. for 8% here, goes down, you know, to, to, to 1% year on year here. But ultimately, it, it, it normalizes at that at that two percent year on year. That's what they mean. So you know, it's interesting. You, you hit on the piece right where we talk about uh, hedging against what's happening right now, right? Because ultimately, I think all three of us want a Bitcoin standard uh, at some point in the future. That'd be great, you know. And and uh, you know, 
there's a million different ways that that could look right based on where we're at today. And it's all speculation as far as what the world could be on a Bitcoin standard. Right. Uh, but until we get to that point, we do have to hedge ourselves against the current economy that we operate in. Um, so Joe, what, what do you think, or, or what are your thoughts on how to hedge against inflation uh, or, you know, more macro trends? Like what, how, how do you, how do you view that side of things in today's economy? For sure. So treasuries and traditionally risk off assets uh, like commodities, like gold, that's what you want to be holding right now. Bitcoin, although the dream is that it will one day become a risk off asset, that's not the way that it's traded. Right. Uh, A good way to measure this is take a look how it performs when volatility spikes. So volatility is uh, a measure of market wide uncertainty. Volatility spikes, uh, you know, think pre-2008 great financial crisis. Think 2000.com bubble to a lesser degree. Think COVID to a very high degree. And what are the assets that have a have a strong correlation to volatility? You want to be long volatility during de-risking when people are trying to uh, hedge their bets. They're trying to hedge against inflation. You want to be long volatility. The idea is that in the long run, Bitcoin will become long volatility, but right now it's short volatility, right? So as liquidity gets drained from the system, liquidity also gets drained from Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin isn't viewed as an absolute necessity safe haven asset because it's not traded that way. Price is truth. And Bitcoin is traded very, very highly correlated to other risk assets. Actually, the article that we're we're working on today that we're going to drop a little bit after the show is uh, I, I ran correlations um, between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ, which, of course, the NASDAQ is heavily tech weighted through time. Um, and since 2017, there's been a 90% daily correlation between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ. Okay, So that is absolute reality. That's absolute wow. truth. Um, and, you know, you don't have an inflation hedge when the NASDAQ has its liquidity drained because you're in a de-risking event because nobody wants to hold incredibly debt finance companies, i.e. tech companies during a de-risking event. You want to hold something um, that will, you know, hold its value through time, right? Commodities, gold, treasuries. Um, There's always going to be demand for treasuries. Right now they're historically oversold. Um, I'm particularly bullish on the 10 year. Now, Bitcoin in the long run has had a few moments where it decouples from its extreme correlation to the NASDAQ. Namely, every single time it goes and has a parabolic advance. Uh, I did basically period correlations, right? So correlations um, during a very set amount of time between, and and this is weekly data. You can't do daily data uh, to run correlations between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ. NASDAQ doesn't trade on weekends and you need to use arrays in order to run correlations. And so essentially on a weekly basis, uh, the correlation between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ, when Bitcoin is going parabolic, Flips negative. Okay. And that's ultimately what you want to see. When you're hedging a portfolio, you're looking for extremely low or perfectly negative correlations, right? That's why the 60-40 portfolio exists. But right now, stocks and bonds are both not performing well. And so the the, the TradFi 60-40 portfolio enjoyers uh, are, are really absolutely speechless right now because during times of extreme volatility, their bonds are supposed to be doing well. Uh, and and performing just enough to hedge that that um, that that huge loss in equities, but right now that's not happening. Um, we're seeing a huge, absolute decrease in confidence across the board. Bonds are getting sold off uh, as as higher and higher interest rates are are being priced in actively by the rates rates markets, um, and equities are getting sold off because people are flying to cash, people are flying to safe haven assets. Um, 
So in the long run, what we're going to look for in terms of Bitcoin becoming an inflation hedge um, because is, is Bitcoin turning into a long volatility asset instead of a short volatility asset, which is what it is right now. There are a few periods through time, I mentioned these parabolic advances, where the correlation between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ flips negative. In order for a true, true, true decoupling to happen, you're going to want to see consistent zero or negative correlation between these two uh, between these two asset classes. And once you see that, um, then you'll you know then then the public will begin and and the the way that this happens is people begin trading it that way, right? Um, over time, this is what needs to happen. But people, you know, people have to trade something in order for it to happen, right? People have to begin viewing Bitcoin uh, as a long volatility asset, as a safe haven asset. Um, you know, price is truth. The only way that that's going to occur is if people start trading it that way. And, and one of Satoshi's quotes um, was, "If you don't, oh gosh, what was it? It's um, blah 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 blah." He said, uh, "Oh, if." Um, if enough people, you know, something about a self-fulfilling prophecy, whatever, right? And ultimately, Bitcoin turning into a safe haven store of value has to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, in order to flip into this long volatility asset, people start have to start trading it that way. Um, people say, you know, what's the turning point? What's the turning point? What's the turning point? Um, well, when people understand that there's essentially, you know, there's a gold rock, there are other commodities that you can you can you can buy. Uh, you know, there's treasuries that you could hold. You could hold dollars, right? Which is also a good bet as liquidity is being drained from the system. As this money vacuum is happening, your dollars become worth more. But there's also Bitcoin, which has the highest stock to flow ratio, right? And, and in commodities, uh, that means through time, its value is diluted the least. Uh, and, and Bitcoin doesn't have the highest stock to flow ratio yet. It will in 2024, but it doesn't yet. That still belongs to gold. Um, and once that happens, potentially, who knows? But until people start trading it that way, um, it won't happen. What uh, what is the current inflation rate of Bitcoin uh, in this halving cycle? Yeah, so um, I don't know. It's it's one point something percent. Um, obviously, we know six point two five Bitcoin are are being minted every ten minutes around the world, regardless yeah. of what ha- r- roughly every ten minutes, right? That's the that's the target time. Um, yeah. But. Uh, the inflation. I have the equation up on my computer, but I don't have the inflation. Yeah. So because it's I think it is uh, like you're saying, I think it is currently higher uh, than gold is. But then then in the next halving cycle with the uh, the block subsidy, as that reduces, then the inflation rate officially becomes lower than gold. And now it is actually the hardest commodity, um, which is which is interesting. Right. Um, you know, another thought that's kind of weird in this time, Joe, is that, you know, there is this very real world today, like Bitcoin is a risk on asset and people trade it as if it's a risk on asset as it is right at this point, it seems like is what you're saying, which kind of makes sense, right? Um, The infrastructure is not there to truly utilize Bitcoin as it needs to be, or as we want it to be right. Um, But also in these times when price is so low, we get to buy up uh, an absolute scarce commodity at a cheaper price than we could three months ago you know it's it's like it's like so many parts of bitcoin are separated um it's all and it's all connected and glued together but they're all these separate parts you know um really interesting stuff that that bitcoin gets into it's like everything (laughs) yeah 
you know, there, there's a huge informational asymmetry right now. And, and I just described it. The markets are trading Bitcoin like uh, an infinitely reproducible equity when in reality, Bitcoin is an increasingly scarce commodity until its mm-hmm. supply is fully exhausted in 2140. So you can capitalize on that informational asymmetry, right? Yeah. Or, or you can FUD and sell your Bitcoin and then get upset once we advance parabolically again. Okay. So, you know, Bitcoin is really about to get tapped. <laughs> yeah. So, so in its 14 year history, right, Bitcoin really hasn't been through a deep prolonged recession. It was birthed out of the great financial crisis. We had 2020, which was sort of a blip on the radar, and the Fed pivoted immediately and began injecting liquidity through QE and also uh, locking interest rates or locking the Fed funds rate, the reference rate at zero. Okay. There's no, no nobody's coming to save the financial markets now. Inflation is too big of a problem at 8.6% to pivot back to QE because your Bitcoin isn't doing well, okay? Um, because the NASDAQ, because the S&P 500 isn't doing well. The Fed put, right, the Fed pivoting and, and saving financial markets right now is completely off the table until inflation is dead, okay? And we're about to see how Bitcoin actually fares during its first major prolonged recession. We talk about money printer, money printer, money printer, right? That proverbial money printer. Well, we're about to experience the proverbial money vacuum, right? What happens when money is being sucked out of the economy and your your denominator, your dollar, your denominator for Bitcoin is strengthening? Uh, what happens to Bitcoin? How do people trade Bitcoin? And right yeah. now we're seeing, okay, um, there's broad market contagion. Uh, liquidity is getting drained from every single uh, aspect of, of the economy. The yeah. Fed is, is tapering uh, off its balance sheet. They're selling assets. So- Dollars are getting reabsorbed uh, and, and vaporized from existence. Bitcoin lost the 25, 24, 23, 22, 21, 20. It might lose 19. It might lose 18. So far, we're seeing how Bitcoin trades during the money vacuum. Uh, and it's important to take a look at price and, and have price as your, your core underlying this is the truth, as opposed to having a narrative that that. You know, people try to ascribe onto Bitcoin when it's not actually there. It's important to look at the price and then glean what is happening based off of the price. And right now, um, people are, you know, uh, this this broad liquidity contagion, uh, you know, liquidity is getting vaporized across all areas of the economy. Bitcoin isn't safe, right? It has lower market capitalization than any of these equities. It has high correlation equities, but two and two together, Bitcoin falls harder, harder and faster. Yeah. So... That's the relationship we're seeing right now. The only way that that will change through time is if people start trading it that way. But if you do believe that this is informational asymmetry, which I do, then you should be selling everything that you do not need and, you know, uh, flipping <laughs> it cash so you can buy Bitcoin. Not, not financial advice. Is that is that your personal strategy right now is you're just stacking, stacking, stacking? I know that you wrote uh, – I read the deal that you wrote about DCA into Bitcoin um, I mean, is that the strategy that you ultimately recommend? I know that that's what Griff and I do. Yeah, so I, I would ultimately, it, it, I, I would recommend DCAing for people who aren't very comfortable. But for myself, thousands of hours of research, you know, I, I, I love this space a great deal. And I'm very, very confident. I have high conviction. Uh, the macro outlook is looking very uncertain. Uh, I'm not saying this is the absolute giga bottom. But what I am saying is that I am deploying massive amounts of capital, um, I potentially, allegedly, supposedly am taking out a 0% interest APR credit card for 50 months to stack. Uh, not financial advice. But as of right now, every single typical indicator is telling us that Bitcoin is historically undervalued and the money vacuum is on. So, How, 
Beautiful. What do you think it's going to take for some of these countries, like Japan, for instance? What's it going to take for Japan to go, okay, backing our economy with dollars is not working out the way that we thought or the way that we were told it would. Let's try Bitcoin. Like, how long do you think until a major country comes along and goes, oh, Bitcoin is absolutely scarce. I mean, I don't I think obviously governments might fear the network of Bitcoin, but they can't fear the money aspect and they have to like that in a sense. I mean, to have something that's absolutely scarce, something better than gold, I mean, is better for other I mean, like the United States is a unicorn. We're getting it from both. We're getting it both ways. Like we're getting it pretty much however we want it. That's almost never happened, even for empires previous to us. But what do you think it's going to take for another country to go? I, I don't know. Is it going to take a depression, or is it going to take a mass or a serious recession or hyperinflation in Japan for them to go? Oh, well, we only can try Bitcoin. It's the only thing left. Or is it going to? Is it going to be a natural progression on over? Like, what do you think? How this thing's going to get adopted over the next? five to 10 years. Yeah. So it varies. Um, and this is sort of the last talking point I'll, I'll, I'll give because I, I have to hop over to, uh, to do, do some work here. So I guess we'll, we'll cut it in, in a couple of minutes here, but what I'll say is it, it varies. I mean, you saw in a country like El Salvador, you know, they, they had relatively low GDP growth year on year. They didn't have a tremendous tourism industry. They didn't, you know, they, there were a lot of things not going for El Salvador. It certainly wasn't the destination people were looking for, you know, on their on their Central American vacation, if anybody takes Central American vacations. And they adopted Bitcoin, lo and behold, tourism's up here on year, GDP's up here on year, foreign direct investment, all these different things. And so it, it benefits a country from uh, uh, a balance of payment, and not a balance of payments perspective, but it benefits them from sort of a, a, a balance sheet perspective in a way, right? So, so that's what El Salvador did, right? They they weren't necessarily the destination of choice, and now they've sort of um, morphed themselves into the de facto Central American destination of choice. Cool, right? They were dollarized. Um, they have uh, far less liquidity in their economy than an economy like the United States, and so that's what they did. The Central African Republic, uh, you know. Situation where, again, they didn't have control over their own currency, right? You First things first, you're going to see sort of the, and this is sort of off the cuff here, but you're probably going to see a continuation of that trend of the most fragile countries who don't have their own uh, reserve currency, right? Who are uh, essentially use the currency of another, uh, another nation, right? Like the Central African Republic, like El Salvador. And they're going to start being friendly in terms of a regulatory environment to Bitcoin. Um, the the broader impacts of that, I don't know, but I would I would really put money on on that trend continuing, um, you know, for the next five, 10 years. Uh, and that's sort of being the, the catalyst for, for more countries to hop on board. Um, I don't necessarily know if a, if a G10 nation like Japan is taking a look at Bitcoin. Um, they have, you know, much bigger problems on their hands. Um, you know, their, their huge unlimited bid experiment with bonds across all maturities uh, is blowing up spectacular in their face. There's a huge sell side, even with their unlimited bid. So we will see. Um, I, I don't think G10 is in the cards for the next 20, maybe 30 years. Um, but who knows? Things could accelerate harder and faster than I think. Man, it has been 
An absolute pleasure to have you on again, Joe. Um, I've got your Twitter down here below that that if you guys are watching, you can see, but it is at Joe Consorti on Twitter. Is that the best place for people to reach you? It is, yes. I frequently uh, shit post on Twitter. Um, I give my <laughs> thoughts all the time on absolutely everything. So catch me there um, and go to the bitcoinlayer.com, all one word, to catch the newsletter and the YouTube channel. Absolutely, yeah, and I've read a couple of the uh, a couple of you guys' newsletters, and they are really great. Really love them. It's uh, it's it's good information. It's it's quick and easy to read through. It makes sense as you're reading it. Um, I like the I like the the pictures too. The pictures are great. <laughs> so yeah, you guys are doing a great thing over there. I'm excited for you, man. Um, I'm happy for uh, for the for the change now that you're you're with the Bitcoin layer. Um, is that what it is? Did I say that correct? It's the Bitcoin layer. Yes. Okay. Perfect, man. Well, I'm excited to have you on again at some point in the future. Happy to have you on again today. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend, brother. Uh, I know you guys are just about to uh, release a new piece, so go get it done, man. Most definitely. Thank you, guys. See you, Joe. Man, that guy's sharp, huh? Yeah, I feel like the last time we talked to him, he was on just this totally different path. And I know you talked to him a little bit more than I do, but dude, it's pretty, it's always really cool to see somebody get really successful uh, and really surrounded by just something they're passionate about. You know what I'm saying? So For sure. Cool see it. And oh, yeah. he, he's on, he's on a different planet as far he's as a, yeah, he's like what he, what he's, what he's talking about, dude. I mean, so we've, we've talked about this uh, going back to all of our guest episodes here over the past, like two, three months and re-listening to them and then doing review episodes of like, let's go back and think about these things we talked about. And uh, dude, I mean, this one, this one could be like a two part review, you know? I mean, there's so much jam packed information in there, dude. That guy has done a ton of research. He knows what's going on. Yeah. I only fully agree with you. Do you have anything (laughs) left you want to throw down on this podcast today, brother? Man, I do not. Uh, come check us out on Twitter. Come hit us on Twitter at Nick and Griff Show. Uh, watch on YouTube if you're not. We got video also on Spotify, and we're on all the major platforms. So whatever you like to listen on, we appreciate it, and we will see you guys next time. Peace. Peace.